Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. I'm glad to have with me today Dr. Chris Yaw, who is a friend of mine. He's also my boss, so be kind. And Chris is the Associate Executive Director at the National Strategic Research Institute. He is the former Chief Scientist of Air Force Global Strike Command. He was a professor at the Naval War College. He spent a career in DOE and uh, DIA intelligence working on the nuclear programs of China. Did you work Russia as well or just focus on China? Oh, I worked Russia as well, Adam. Okay, so Russia too, Russia and China. Yes. Okay. So with that, today we wanted to talk about ultra-low-yield nuclear weapons and micro-nuclear weapons. It's something that we don't often talk about. A lot of times we, we think when we think nuclear, we're often thinking about strategic nuclear weapons. And we're thinking about, you know, ICBMs crossing the poles. And we're thinking about this massive exchange leading to the end of society. Now, the war in Ukraine has led us to think about low-yield weapons because the Russians have lots and lots of them. But today we want to talk about weapons that are at the very lowest yields, that have some very discrete and unique purposes. And so Chris knows these weapons, and he understands when they would be used and why they would be used. So, Chris, thanks for joining us to talk about this important topic. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, re- really appreciate Anwa's efforts and uh, really appreciate all the, the great guests you've had on NucleCast. Uh, just uh, just revisited the one with Stacy Joe. Uh, she, she was great. Um, of course, uh, outlining all of NNSA's uh, great work, um, which, we, which we actually help with. Um, and we're privileged to be able to do that. But yeah, the, the, the big thing that we've kind of focused on for the last few years now uh, are these ultra, what we call ultra low and very low yield nuclear weapons. Um, Ultra and very, we're kind of taking those out of the electromagnetic spectrum analogs. Um, When we say ultra low yield nuclear weapon, we mean something on the order of tons of, tens of tons. Uh, When we say some, when we say very low yield, uh, we're looking at something on the order of hundreds of tons. So these are these are very, uh, very small blasts for nuclear weapons. Very large blasts if compared to um, to conventional weapons. Uh, mother of all bombs, for example, that's that's I think eleven tons. I used to work conventional weapons, and if you see a, a, a mother of all bombs go off in the distance, you'll likely see something that looks kind of like a mushroom cloud, and 
you know, to your mind, you're going to start thinking, wow, was that a, was that a low yield nuke? Um, it, it, it wouldn't have been, obviously we have used, um, uh, mother of all bombs. Uh, I think that's the, uh, GBU 48B, 43B maybe, uh, 43B, and, the, yep. yeah, and the predecessor the Daisy cutter. Uh, so those, those pack a real wallop, uh, they're conventional. Um, when we look at ultra low yield nuclear warheads, they're deliverable in a much, much smaller space. So you don't have to deliver them by cargo plane. <laughs> they can be yeah. delivered by multiple rocket launch system, you know, or, uh, or by a torpedo or by a long range hypersonic missile or any of a variety of these kinds of theater weapons, uh, that both Russia and China have specialized in over the course of say the last quarter century. And, um, while we, while we divested of essentially all of our non-strategic, what, what's called non-strategic nuclear weapons. Um, and, and I should point out that non-strategic, nobody means that there's not a strategic effect. They don't have a strategic impact. Types of weapons. Yeah. Uh, but they are in a category called non-strategic as opposed to strategic, which are captured by treaty. Um, and right now, all of our ICBMs, our SLBMs, our, our bomber-delivered uh, cruise missiles, those are captured by treaty in one way or another. Uh, but um, the, uh, the non-strategic nuclear weapons, uh, the United States had a pretty formidable host of these at one time. In the Cold War, we had thousands uh, deployed to Europe, in fact. Um, about 7,000, I think, in the 60s and 70s, going down to about 6,000 near the end of the Cold War. Um, not all by the end of the Cold War were something that we would, uh, you know, prefer to use. Uh, and so we were going away from some of those anyway. But the presidential nuclear initiatives in 91 and 92, we, we kind of swept those aside almost completely. We're left with a few B-61 uh, type gravity direct attack bombs. Um, as our non-strategic portfolio. Now, th that portfolio requires a, a pilot, so a manned uh, airplane jet to fly to the target, directly to the target, over the target practically. Um, and so there is a, a, a very um, distinct kind of mission profile there and a set of mission risks. Uh, with the Russians, they have thousands of these non-strategics. Many of them are in this category of ultra low and very low yield. And they are, as I mentioned, on a variety of platforms, naval platforms um, like naval cruise launch uh, cruise missiles, uh, naval launch cruise missiles like the Caliber or the Onyx, um, naval depth charges and torpedoes even. Uh, ground forces, ground forces have, uh, everything from, from longer range artillery to mines. They, they run the gamut. Uh, the, the Russians, some, some people have said if there's a conventional weapon, the Russians will figure out how to put a nuke on it. <laughs> so, uh, and they have thousands. Uh, now how many they have in this ultra low and very low yield category? We just really don't know. Uh, there, there's at least many hundreds uh, in each of those categories. And they spent the better part of two decades uh, conducting um, tests at Nevada's Emily, tests that we cannot 
we cannot detect. So it's below our detection threshold. And many of those tests we believe are in support of this kind of uh, weapons development. And so what, what can you do with those? Well, um, the, 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 the folks on the other end here that are listening to us may remember the Beirut explosion. I think that was the summer of 2020. And it was a pretty big explosion. It was at the port of Beirut. And, um, but that explosion was probably on the order of a quarter kiloton or so, give or take, um, somewhere in the hundreds of tons. Uh, that did not destroy Beirut. Um, it, it wiped out a good part of the um, of the port area in which it occurred, uh, but it was not apocalyptic. Devastating, yes, not apocalyptic. And so that's kind of what what Russia and, and perhaps China, we have less transparency into China, but um, perhaps China as well, is looking for in these weapons. Something that is devastating, but not apocalyptic. So I wanna I wanna hurt, I wanna I wanna achieve some military objectives at a high economy of force. So I'm gonna use one warhead to achieve a what I otherwise would need 50 tomahawks or or whatever to achieve. Um, so economy of force for a, a valuable military uh, objective, um, and I wanna put the put the U.S. on notice that hey. Whatever we're fighting about right now, it's important enough for me to cross the nuclear threshold, but I don't want to enrage the United States and I don't want to provoke uh, a massive response. And so devastating, but not apocalyptic. Now, some, you know, within the disarmament community, there is this argument that, you know, a 150 kiloton ICBM is exactly the same thing as a, you know, 30 ton ultra low yield weapon. Do do you see it that way? Do do you think, you know, presidents, uh, secretaries of defense, ministers of defense uh, see it that way? Is there really no distinction or is that just sort of a, a, a useful tool when you're trying to eliminate all nuclear weapons. It's yeah, like a narrative tool. Yeah, I think it's more of a narrative tool. But but I will say that in a certain sense, they're correct uh, that you are either in non-nuclear conflict or you've crossed over to nuclear conflict. It's a Rubicon that we haven't crossed since 1945. So in a certain, uh, to a certain extent, um, any nuke, has that kind of strategic significance of putting us into a place where we have never been essentially, um, except once, and that was a war termination strike. However, <laughs> I live on the outskirts of a little town called Warrenton, Virginia. And if the Russians dropped 150 kiloton on Warrenton, I would be pretty displeased for a few seconds, and then I would be dead. <laughs> uh, if they dropped a 30 ton on Warrenton, uh, you know, my my windows would would rumble, but they wouldn't even shatter. Uh, and and so the hundred thousand folks around that are left surviving a thirty ton blast as opposed to a hundred and fifty kiloton blast will certainly feel like there's a big difference and be thankful for it. I'm sure. Um, the there's yeah, there's a huge difference. These the 
the, you know, you could call them micro nukes, we call them ultra low, very low yield nuclear weapons. They are small enough so that when you use them in a strike, you can essentially pick a building. It could be a, a very hardened structure, uh, you know, massive concrete building, etc. And you could look to take that out. Um, or you could look to take out an entire city block or something of that scale. Uh, those are very discreet, very discriminate uh, types of attacks. And, and once you cross that nuclear Rubicon, you may find you have the need for that. This, this conflict in Ukraine is, is very idiosyncratic in, in many ways. But, but what we are seeing is that without, without um, an air war that has tamped everything down and obliterated one side or the other, which, which you know, the U.S. is kind of used to that, um, if it's a ground game and it's purely a ground game, then you start having to worry about magazine depth, conventional magazine depth. Um, even if it's, uh, even if it's an air, uh, you know, an air sea type of campaign, you're still going to have to worry about magazine depth. And at some point, um, even after thousands of missiles have been conventional missiles have been launched and, and struck targets, et cetera, there's, there's going to be a war that's continuing. I mean, this yeah. war in Ukraine has lasted a lot longer than I think a lot of people thought it would on all sides. And, uh, and we're seeing some of the effects of lack of ammunition, lack of munitions, et cetera. Um, that's, that's where these kinds of ultra low and very low yield nuclear weapons uh, would come into play. And now I don't think Russia would use those kind of weapons in this scenario, unless, you know, in the Ukraine scenario, unless there was some sort of dramatic uh, and, and really embarrassing type of escalation. Um, you know, if, if there was a successful strike that took out several of their bombers at Engels Air Force Base or, you know, I mean, even a damaged bomber at Engels or Riazan or wherever, uh, you know, we've seen a couple of those strikes. E even that's not going to, uh, to cause um, uh, Russia to over-escalate across the nuclear threshold. They'd really have to see um, either their their gains on the battlefield being reversed in dramatic fashion or some sort of escalatory, dramatic escalatory type of strike, um, presidential type of assassination attempt or, you know, something yeah. that's really dramatic. Um, but even so, in using those kinds of ultra low, very low yield uh, nuclear weapons, if if you set them for airburst, which is it's generally done because it maximizes the destructive potential on the ground. Um, there's essentially zero fallout. So we're not talking about, you know, sort of these long lived uh, fallout products that, that then cause cancer, et cetera. Um, you're really talking about um, immediate effects and immediate effects of a, of a pretty small scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the order of a small village or, a, you know, or smaller. And that that specific hardened building that you need that fifteen psi to take down, that would be that sort of that perfect you know opportunity. Now, exactly. Before we move on, unfortunately, we were halfway through the show, and it's wow. time to take a quick break. So we're talking to Dr. Chris Yaw.
And we're talking about ultra-low-yield nuclear weapons, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeter.org slash NucleCast. And we're back and we're talking about ultra-low-yield nuclear weapons Chris Shaw is with us, and we were just talking about instances in which you might use them. Now, one of the questions that I have, and I think a lot of people have, and it's sort of one of the arguments that advocates of nuclear disarmament make, is they say, you don't need these weapons anymore. We have precision-guided munitions that can kill the same targets with a conventional weapon. So why would you – and they're primarily talking about larger strategic nuclear weapons. But they would probably even say that this is even more applicable with these low and ultra-low yield nuclear weapons. But are there actual targets that you really need one of these, you know, you've said 30 tons, 100 tons, 200 tons. So, you know, hundreds of times smaller than a, a, a conventional, you know, large SLBM or but but do we need them? Are there targets that, that take that type of a weapon? That's a, it's a very good question. I mean, I, I would say there are certain classes of targets for which that weapon is, is extremely well suited. Um, it's not necessarily the only uh, type of option. So uh, when, when we think about war and we think about options and we think uh, about a, an opponent potentially going nuclear, crossing the nuclear threshold, we would always want to be in the position to offer to the president of the United States options. And one of those options should be prompt, penetrating, and proportional. Um, If you don't have such an option, then then you have really uh, radically constricted the, the decision space of the U.S. president. So that's the first thing. You may want to go nuclear for for reasons beyond just how much damage I can inflict. A nuclear weapon obviously has a different kind of psychological effect on the adversary. So in in our response to nuclear strikes, we may want to have a nuclear strike that's suitable, that uh, that has that kind of deterrent escalate, uh, deterrent effect on the adversary. Um, remember, de- deterrence is from terreo, the, the, uh, the Latin word terreo, uh, meaning I, I frighten. So you want to be able to reestablish deterrence at the lowest possible level of 
destructive violence or intensity or escalation possible. And so that's why you want something that's, um, that's proportional. Now it has to be prompt and it has to be penetrable. That is, it has to get to the target and it has to get to the target in a, in a meaningfully timely way. Um, can't, you know, you don't want it to arrive. I, ideally, you don't want it to arrive a couple days later. If the adversary has just crossed the nuclear threshold, chances are a lot of things will change in the next two days. Uh, so, so there's, there's a lot there, um, for us to consider. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think, um, yeah, it's all about options, really. Um, you could expend, for example, you could expend 50 or 100 tomahawks on the same type of target, whether it's an air base or it's a, a command and control node or, or what have you. Uh, but our, our supply of tomahawks, uh, conventional tomahawks, is not infinite. Um, if we were in a high-intensity fight over many, many months with China or Russia, we would find ourselves hard pressed to keep up a uh, sufficient magazine depth. And, and if they're, if we're having to trade munitions, they're shooting one, it's an ultra low yield nuclear weapon with 20 tons, and we're having to shoot 50 back to achieve the same kind of military operational effect or deterrent effect, whatever we're going for. Um, that's a, that's a pretty high exchange ratio and probably not sustainable. So uh, as I try to think about it, and you, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, as I think about it, I see uh, a place where, and I think this is something you've written about, and you've got an article coming out, where the Russians understand that they cannot defeat the United States in a conflict, or NATO and I mean, they can't beat the Ukrainians, much less the United States and NATO. So therefore, they understand, and, and I, I think it's analogous to the 1950s under, you know, the new look plan with Eisenhower, where they have said, essentially, we're going to build nuclear capabilities that, that run a full spectrum of options, such that if you threaten, you know, the sovereignty and the survivability of the Russian state, we're going to use nuclear weapons that are in a gap of your capabilities such that, you know, you can't say, well, you used a 30 ton nuclear weapon on a discrete, you know, on, you know, the, the bunkers of one of our, you know, our fighter bases that have the B-61s. And so we've disabled that, that base. And so therefore, you know, you're not going to escalate to all out, thermonuclear war. And so we think that we can escalate to de-escalate, stop a conflict to save the, the, the sovereignty of the Russian state. And that they think that's a feasible option and they fear. And I think this is something you've pointed out. They really fear American air power because it's just something they, they don't match us. Neither the Chinese nor the Russians match us there. Is that sort of how you see particularly Europe and then how would you see China using these types of weapons? Yeah, that's definitely, you, you pretty, pretty well nailed it. Um, the, that's how I would see Europe. Um, the, the Russians, uh, they know they can't compete on, fi on a fifth gen air power kind of uh, plane. Um, what we're seeing in Ukraine 
is the outcome of essentially very little air power being used by either side. That would not be the case if they were up against NATO. NATO would be coming with all their uh, all of our fifth gen forces, our fourth gen uh, enabled by fifth gen, fourth gen plus. Uh, very quickly, the skies would be ours, and we would be rolling up ground forces. Um, it, it would be a really ugly look for Russia. And so what, what does Russia then have to do? Well, they've thought through this. And one of the reasons why they developed these ultra low and very low yield nuclear weapons is because they have to somehow knock those sortie rates down. So if I go off after the air bases, okay, well, now I can take out NATO air bases. Those fifth gen sortie rates start plummeting. Now I actually have a chance in this conflict. Um, what we would want to be able to do with a prompt, proportional, and penetrable response option is to forestall that uh, that option for the Russians. That is, we want to deter them from crossing the nuclear threshold in the first place. To do that, they need to see that we have some sort of credible response. Like you mentioned, we're not going to go to you know global thermonuclear exchange because an airbase got struck or a missile defense site got struck with a 30 ton uh, nuclear weapon. Um, uh, and so we want to deliver credible options to the president that are more important, also potentially more importantly, credible options when viewed from, uh, from uh, President Putin's uh, perspective so that he doesn't cross that threshold in the first place. That's, that's the, the entire uh, you know, concept behind, and for that matter, bef behind the Slickum N, um, the Sea Launch Cruise Missile Nuclear, uh, which which we had put into the 2018 NPR, and and subsequently it got canceled and then uh, reinserted by Congress. So when you take that kind of um, uh, a, a picture and you apply it to the Pacific, some things change. Obviously, Pacific distances are different. Um, the, the Chinese uh, air is actually a little superior to, to Russian air, I would say. The J-20 is a, is a, is been fielded in some numbers, at least, whereas, uh, you know, the f so-called fifth-gen Russian fighters have not. So, uh, so there are some differences, but, but China has got to be looking at what's happening right now and saying, this same thing could really happen to us. And we've got to recalculate that they, they've been thinking this for 20 years anyway. Now, while while Russia and China would both rather be in the position of overwhelming conventional dominance in their sphere of influence, they're not. And, and, and both of them know that. And so they have to have this this backstop, this recourse in case things get bad. We can strike Guam, for example, with two uh, very low yield nuclear uh, nuclear warheads atop a DF-26, for example, and we can we can take down Guam for at least a, a few days. Let's say that's operationally incredibly significant for China, and so that's that would be the same kind of impetus for China. Um, probably not in the same numbers, the thousands of non-strategics that that Russia uh, employs right now. We we don't see that kind of capacity in China to be able to field those numbers, uh, but certainly they are fielding 
significant numbers. And I would say more significant than you see in, in the standard press. You know, one thing that uh, has often sort of puzzled me and we're, I'm sort of switching topics on you here is, you know, in there's this advocacy that has existed over the last five, seven, 10 years amongst advocates of nuclear disarmament where they wanted to eliminate the ICBM leg of the triad for the United States. Now, as I've watched both Russia and China, both have largely focused on their ballistic missile legs of their triads. And so that leads me to believe that both Russia and China value ballistic missiles. But if, if I am to believe the arguments I'm told, they're, they're sort of a Cold War relic. That's one thing that I'm told they are is a Cold War relic. They're destabilizing. They have all these many problems. But yet, as I'm looking at this very active Chinese modernization programs, they're building a whole range of ballistic missiles from short to intercontinental ranges. So I guess my question is, why do the Russians and the Chinese find them so useful, so relevant that that's their focus of modernization, but yet I'm told they're completely irrelevant in a Cold War relic. Mm. You've, you've thrown me a curveball now. I love <laughs> it. Uh, so, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, you, you mentioned the destabilizing thing, which is really, really somewhat of a joke. The most stabilizing piece of our triad, and, and by the way, I would say that Modernizing the triad, that's the floor at this point, not the ceiling. Yeah. Um, we've, we've moved beyond, you know, oh, should we, should we modernize the whole triad? No. Modernizing the triad is the floor. We need additional beyond that. Yes. So it's the floor, not the ceiling. But ICBMs are the most stabilizing piece of the triad. It is the piece that, uh, what we say it complicates, uh, adversaries calculus. That's a fancy way of just saying, look, they have to conceive of chucking almost a thousand nuclear warheads into the breadbasket of America. There's hardly something that you could conceive of that is more escalatory. That is, that's kind of an end of the world sort of strike. And so they're always there, always on alert, always ready. And, and the adversary has to consider chucking a thousand warheads into that uh, into those missile fields, knowing that we may actually fire out from under that, and they may be hitting empty silos by the time they get there. So uh, it, it is really incredibly stabilizing. Now, when you when you shift to theater ballistic missiles, that's a little different. Um, you know, theater to ballistic missiles have do have a little bit of of uh, destabilizing type of activity with them because they are they're very prompt and you also don't know what's coming at you is it a conventional is it a nuclear is it a is it a marv is it not a marv I, you know i can't quite tell what's coming at me right yet um so so there is a lot they contribute to that fog of war um and they do actually uh um uh, you know kind of uh, the calculus becomes a little bit more difficult um, due to those destabilizing. But there again, we used to have uh, Pershing II, for example. Pershing II is a great weapon. Um, 
we could easily think of having a ground launched hypersonic missile uh, of continental range that's maybe, you know, mobile and it's in fielded in Alaska and it's both conventional and it has a nuclear variant. I mean, that's the type of thing that our adversaries would uh, sit up and, and notice. They would take pause. They would say, hmm. It's not going to be so easy if we want to, you know, take down Guam, because guess what? They've got a bunch of hypersonics coming out of Alaska and they're only 100 tons or 300 tons or 10 tons. We don't know, but they're small. They're very credible. We can't hit them. Uh, and, and all of a sudden we're going to get hit by 100 of those things. Um, bad odds. So that's that's kind of the calculus we need to put them back into where they say, mm, not today. That's that's a bad play for me to do this today. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, let me ask you, so we're, we're running out of time, but I want to ask one final question. Do you ever see or sort of do you have a an image in your mind of what would lead Russia or China to come to an arms control ag agreement to negotiate away these ultra low yield nuclear weapons? Yes, the United States has to have some to trade with them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, are you look, channeling that, your inner your inner Ronald Reagan because that was sort of the INF treaty right there? <laughs> right, right. I think I think there's a lot that we can learn from the dual track decision that NATO took back in 1979 that that really was instant uh, was executed under Reagan. Uh, where look, what we wanted was a was zero intermediate nuclear forces. But we knew we were going to have to put something on the table uh, in order to get the Russians to take theirs off the table. I mean, you know, this is this is simple negotiations 101. Anybody who's bought a car off a lot should understand these kind of uh, principles, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. So I want to thank Dr. Christopher Yaw. Associate Executive Director at the National Strategic Research Institute and a leading thinker on ultra-low-yield nuclear weapons. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. And I want to thank all the listeners for joining us on this episode, and we hope you'll join us on episodes in the future, and we'll see you the next time. Well, we just talked with Dr. Chris Yaw, and we talked ultra-low-yield nuclear weapons. It's something we don't often think about or talk about. And by ultra-low-yield, you know, we, we were talking about 10 tons, 100 tons, as opposed to 150 to 300-plus kilotons. So these were much, much smaller weapons. And it was interesting to think through and to talk with Chris about why the Russians have them, the Chinese, and what they might use them for. And so I found that discussion really interesting. And I hope you found it interesting as well. And at the very end, he said, we need them as well, because that's the only way the Russians will negotiate them away. So that was an important takeaway. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. 
Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nucleacast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.